the pulse of the Hawkesbury. Pulse 89.9. On the line we have uh, Paul Byrne, who's a professor with the Institute of Sustainability and Innovation at Victoria University, Melbourne, and has published uh, quite a lot of books on uh, ecology management. Uh, For the CSIRO, you did a book, Paul, on the Hawkesbury River, which I thought was really, really interesting and that it'd be great to have a chat with you this morning. And how are you in the Daintree, isn't it? No, I'm in the Dandenongs. Dandelongs, that's Melbourne. it. I knew it started with D. <laughs> the other point is I, I, five years ago, I, I should have updated you earlier, five years ago I moved from Victoria University to the University of Melbourne. So I'm yeah. in geography and earth sciences and I think it's atmospheric sciences now in University of Melbourne, but I'm in the Dandenongs, which is rather a long way from Melbourne University. <laughs> in splendid isolation, watching the mist come up over the valley. Yeah, I'm jealous of that. I, I really am. The chapters in the uh, Hawkesbury uh, River, a social and nature history that you did, the chapters on geography, geology, hydrology, ecology of the river, it was... Look, I, I think that that's just absolutely a marvellous book, but you're, you you were on the river for a long time, weren't you? You grew up on it. Yeah, I grew up on it. My mum, in fact, still lives at Mount Kuringai, and I spent my childhood in the, in the late 50s, not that I can remember much about that part of it, but certainly the 60s and 70s, walking down to Bobbin Head or down to Barrow Waters, because Mount Kuringai's on the ridgeline between Cowan Creek and Barrow Creek, and sometimes taking further expeditions up the McDonald. And I remember once lilowing down the Colo, nearly getting hypothermia, <laughs> being terribly inexperienced at what we were doing. So and that, that, in fact, prompted my wanting to write the book because the, the Hawkesbury didn't have a book devoted to it, mm. despite it being, one, just a drop-dead gorgeous river, yeah. and two, being so central to both Aboriginal and European life around Sydney. Mm. Um, the, the Hawkesbury was Sydney's breadbasket for 20-odd years um, just after the uh, Governor Phillip came here yeah. because of the pretty lousy soils around Sydney and the Hawkesbury had fresh water, yeah. pretty good soils. They could grow maize and um, wheat and mm. raise pigs and send it all down to down to Sydney. Mm. So the, the river desperately needed a... Um, Someone who, one, loved it and, two, wanted to write an encompassing mm. history of the river, not just a social history but a biological history and a, um, even including things like access roads and um, train lines. You know, the, the, the train line from Sydney up to Woiwoi, of course, crosses the Hawkesbury and yes. it is, it's one of the most spectacular train trips you can do. Mm. But, I mean, with the book that you wrote, and it was with CSIRO that you did that, um, you know, like the floods that we have, we've been having them since DOT, okay? So it's not just that it's happened because we've got Warragam Dam. It's been happening and happening. And, um, I mean, you address that too in this book. And I think it's interesting that we sometimes we forget this, but how do you see it now Paul, with all of the building out and the residents and what we're doing around here, how do you look at that from your point of view of the ecology of the river? A couple of things. The first is that I'll talk about the physical aspects of it, but then I'll, before I do that, when Governor Phillip came here, he, he mounted four 
expeditions up to the Hawkesbury by foot and by boat. And we'd only been in the country a couple of months and he and John Hunter observed that this is a really, really flood-prone river. And then if you look at Governor Macquarie, 1810, he went up to the Hawkesbury and I'm just looking at his actual words. And in 1810, he's up around Richmond and he said that the houses and habitations of the settlers are miserably bad and the centre lines of farms are liable to be flooded on any inundation of the Hawkesbury River. So it's not as if we haven't known about this. Mm. Arthur Phillip and, and John Hunter worked it out within a year of being you know, yeah. the colony at Sydney. Lachlan Macquarie in 1810 pointed it out and, and moved um, the centres when he established Pitt Town and Windsor and Richmond, moved their centres so he thought they'd be on higher ground not susceptible to flooding. Mm. So we've known about this from the very beginning mm. of European colonisation of the river. But the second point is just why the river is so flood prone. And it really is flood prone. If you look at the, the history of floods, uh, which I cover in the book, I mean, there were, there were big floods, big, big floods in 1806 and 1809 and 1819 and 1864, the really big one, which I think is still the biggest one of 1867 that reached nearly 20 metres at, wow. at Windsor. So we've known about this for a really long time. And there's a couple of factors that are responsible for it, irrespective of what we've done with Warragamba Dam. The first is that Sydney's a wet place. Um, I've moved to Melbourne 30 odd years ago, and we always disparage Melbourne for being wet. But in fact, Sydney's average rainfall of about 1.2 metres a year is roughly twice what Melbourne gets. And even the rain shadow parts of Sydney, such as Ground Glory, gets about eight or 900 mils of rain a year, which is what I get in the Dandenongs. And the Dandenongs is the wettest part of Melbourne. So mm. Sydney's a wet, wet place. Mm. The Hawkesbury catchment is really big and it's very diverse. Mm. Um, it, it's got a couple of choke points in the river. So... On the Hawkesbury Nepean, there's a choke point at two of the gorges, Castlereagh Gorge and Sackville Gorge, and that's where the river narrows down as it flows through a, a, um, a sandstone gorge, because the Hawkesbury yeah. is, of course, on sandstone. Yeah. So the, the water just can't get through. Uh, you've also got really big floodplains um, yeah. around Penrith, around between Richmond and Wilberforce, if I remember, and yeah. just downstream of Sackville, probably two. Mm -hmm. about Spencer. Mm -hmm. So you've got, a, you've got a big catchment. You've got a wet catchment on the whole, um, yeah. especially the last couple of years. You've got choke points in the river where the river narrows down as it goes through sandstone gorges. And then you've got big floodplains, at least in three parts of the river. And of course, those floodplains are where people want to live because the land is flat, the soil's better. Um, you can put roads in and things like that and it's very difficult otherwise to get roads or railway lines through you know, the Hawkesbury sandstone there's only one or two roads and they all follow the ridge lines and if you look at the areas up around the colo and that there's no roads there because you know it's in, it's inhospitable country yeah so we've wanted to move onto the floodplains for good reasons um but there's a real cost with doing that and that is a floodplain called a floodplain because it floods <laughs> And in a way, I wonder, I wonder whether we've lost sense of the fact that floodplains flood because in the 50s and 60s, the only things we put on floodplains were things like golf courses and caravan parks. And the reason for that was 
that we realised they would flood and uh, in theory at least a caravan park, you could move people out of it. And the only infrastructure there was some cinder block uh, amenity blocks, toilets and showers. And if they went underwater, it didn't really matter. So we then started to really heavily colonise the floodplain with houses inadvisedly and why are we surprised when they flood and and of course the other point is that it's really difficult access is really difficult um, just like access up here in the dandenongs is difficult which is problematic for fires because there's only a couple of roads in or out there's not many roads in or out of things like windsor and you know again you see the windsor bridge going underwater again and that that restricts people's ability to move out quickly yeah so look it's a combination catherine of the the climate, this remarkable geology, geomorphology landforms, it gives the Hawkesbury, which is what makes the Hawkesbury so attractive as a river. But it also means that where you've got gorges, the water backs up. And then you've got big floodplains that were highly attractive to farmers for good reasons, because it's good, yeah. relatively good soils and good access to water. But we've decided to put lots and lots and lots of people on those floodplains. And of course, the Probably the icing on the cake is that the river discharges down into Broken Bay. And if you've got the wrong type, when I say wrong, and um, an unfortunate tidal regime or a storm surge coming up from Broken Bay, the water backs up even further. So you've got this great combination of factors that make the river very, very flood prone. And as I said, we've known about that for 250 years. I think we experienced the, the high tides during this flood, didn't we? Uh, there was some real, real big, big tides that slowed everything down. Is it the? Yeah, I think that. Sorry, that's Paul. quite common that you've got high. To combine it with a high tide, especially if it's a, a spring tide or even worse, a king tide, and you combine that with an easterly wind that's blowing water up the river, um, and then if you have got that with say an east coast low system, which dumps lots and lots of rain on Sydney, you've just got this combination of factors that means it's going to flood. And the river does flood repeatedly. I was walking along the the river yesterday, taking the the dog for a walk, and what I'm, I guess, amazed to see is just the damage it's causing now, uh, right opposite uh, where Windsor is, where you have the lookout. You can see across the towards the the cafe that's over there. We call it the beach, Windsor Beach. Yeah. Well, that looks like a pretty big beach now. Uh, it, it even looks like the bank has eroded so much, but. I guess that's always happened with the river is, is when we get these big, big floods, we lose a lot of the, the vegetation on, on the embankments. It does, especially, but it takes a big flood to do it. Mm. You look at things like reed beds, phragmites, they, they, the plants just bend over when the flood water comes over them and then they cover and protect the sediments. So the only way that, those plants are lost as if the floodwaters undermine the plants so they uh, it cuts under them and then the whole lot's just washed away and get washed downstream mm. but on the whole the veget- vegetation protects riverbanks but of course we've cleared most of that vegetation because we want access to the riverbanks mm. so in the past you may have had really big expanses of reed i remember as a kid growing up in uh, in northern sydney and even um, an auntie's place down on the Cooks River, there were really big expanses of the reed beds. And they, of course, were all clean, cleaned out and for housing and because people just didn't like wetlands there, thinking they caused miasmas and diseases. Yeah. But though, those big wetlands were things that either slowed floodwaters down or 
settled a lot of the nutrients and particles out, and they of course protected the they protected the banks of the river, but we've removed most of that vegetation now because we want better access to it or we want a better view of it. Do you know, I have one, I don't know if this is probably rhetorical this is, but the amount of building that we've done in surrounding areas around the Hawkesbury, all of the houses, and someone said to us during this time that the ground that was there to absorb the water has gone because it's got concrete and houses on it now, but all of the gutters and all of the drainage system and everything would have to flow somewhere and it, I'm sure it flows into the Hawkesbury River because it's the closest outlet for it. But even if it didn't, that has changed what was the natural flood plain that you speak of, Paul, to something that's a lot worse than what it needs to be. Oh, completely. The technical term for that is called impervious surfaces. So it's things like your roofs, concrete paths, roads. You know, people, of course, don't have gardens anymore. There's just large slabs of concrete. And yep. whereas the rainwater would have slowly filtered into the soil or been flow into wetlands where it yep. would be you know, sucked up like a sponge in the wetland, yep. now you've got huge areas of hard surfaces where it just runs off. Yep. And that's got two consequences. And the first is that it, it runs off, so you've got more runoff. But the second consequence is it runs off really quickly. Mm. So instead of the water slowly seeping into the river over a couple of days or maybe even a week, mm. it runs into the river in a matter of hours. So you've yes. got very, what type of geologists call flashy events. You know, the water rises very, very quickly mm. because of the, the amount of imper- the areas of impervious surfaces that we've looked with. Um, roads, roofs, paved surfaces, you know, concrete paths, things like that. And I would imagine that the the removal of wetlands all along the river has exacerbated that because the yeah. wetlands were obviously depressions yes. and they would temporarily hold water. They'd have peaty soils, they'd soak the water up and they'd let it ooze out into the river over a matter of weeks afterwards. And we've, we've removed all of that. So as you say, Catherine, we've so changed the catchment that and, sorry, Paul. Yeah, it's not not unexpected that this is what occurs. Yeah, it, it's actually quite sad because really the um, natural way that the land fell was looking after the floods and had uh, measures put in place naturally, as you say, with the wetlands to absorb the water and to release slowly. Uh, there's a big push, as you know, to have the dam wall built up. Now there's always two and and all that about these things. But apart from the fact that if they build the wall up, then they say they won't build in the flood areas, but we all know they'll do that eventually. But from an ecology point of view, how do you see that? What What's that going to do if we build that wall up? Two things. I'm not an engineer, but yep. the first point about building a, a dam wall up is that people will expect that dam the reservoir behind the dam wall to do two things. They expect it to provide flood mitigation and they yeah. expect it to provide protection against droughts. Mm-hmm. Well, you can't have both, right? If you want flood mitigation, you've got to have low water levels in the dam. Mm-hmm. If you want to have protection against droughts, so you've got a good water supply for five years, you've got to have water high in the dam. Mm-hmm. So you can't have both. And yeah. the expectation that you can raise the, the wall um, and that will provide flood some protection against floods is true only in so far as you keep the water levels in the dam low, which is what engineers call airspace. Yeah. 
and they won't do that because they'll keep water levels high because we're you know we'll eventually enter another El Nino cycle yes. and you know we're going to be in three, five, seven years of drought again. So we're wanting as much fresh water as we can to provide a a city which you know was recently growing at about a hundred thousand people per year, all of them demanding more and more water. So the first point is that you can't with a dam you can't have it simultaneously providing Thanks. flood mitigation and providing water for the city because one of them requires the dam to be empty one requires the dam to be full yeah Cross the second purposes. point ecologically is that rivers require freshwater flows yeah. and so do estuaries estuaries are where the river meets the sea fish migrate on freshwater flows um, things like brim iconic fish that many people fish for, including me, breed in the estuary where there's only a very particular salinity regime. So once we start, once we've stopped freshwater flows down rivers, we've effectively castrated them because the those freshwater flows are required for maintaining the vegetation along the banks. They're required for breeding cues for fish and migration cues. They're what brings food into the river which then invertebrates eat and then fish eat the invertebrates. We've got to have environmental flows in rivers and by regulating rivers, by putting great thumping dams on them and only allowing trivial amounts of water out, as we said, we've castrated the river. And that's true of the Hawkesbury, but the Hawkesbury is lucky in that it's got the Gross and the Colo and the McDonald um, you know, flowing in from the north, largely from protected areas. So they've still got flows from there. But compare that with the Snowy River, where the Snowy River is a, a pale, pale, weak imitation of what it was in the past because Jindabyne Dam on the Snowy Mountain Scheme intercepts 99% of the water. Yeah. Um, so ecologically, rivers have got to have flow mm. and they've got to have variable flow because the, those variations in flow, the freshers and the, the bankful flows, and occasionally, yes, overbank flows and big floods, are what resets the river and the whole ecology of the river is timed to those flows. You can't just have a river that flows at one rate and if you've intercepted all the water upstream for human use yeah. at a pretty miserable rate, rate yeah. because then you just get, sadly, a pretty miserable, depauperate river. It's um, such a huge topic, this river and, you know, what what the powers to be may do. And as uh, a fellow we had on last week, uh, Harry Terry, said that, you know, when we talk about raising the dam wall or not, it's been talked about for, I think he said 30 years, didn't he, Scott? Yeah, Something like yeah, that. Yeah. It's been going on for such a long time. It's whether it's just maybe on the bookshelf now as a talking piece or whether, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's it's a big subject. But, this you know. topic ebbs and flows, doesn't it? It does. Uh, good <laughs> on you. <laughs> Look, Paul, thank you very much for chatting with us today uh, at Pulse FM. Um, we've enjoyed your time and your knowledge and really anyone who wants to know about the Hawkesbury River, this book's still for sale. I think it is, isn't it? Yes, it is. We did a pretty big print run. Um, yeah. It's been out since 2000 and very late 2017 and I yeah. moseyed up from Melbourne to give quite a few talks at Windsor and um, Hornsby Shire and in yeah. the museum in College Street. So it's still for sale. CSIRO is the publisher. Yeah. I think they did a superb job on it. It's mm. printed on art quality paper, 600 odd pages. It yeah. took me nearly a decade to write. It nearly killed me. 
<laughs> printed on art quality paper, section sewn, hardcover, yep. beautiful illustrations. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. But, you have to get a I copy of it. Yeah. I think it's just over 100 bucks. I think it's $120 or so, yeah. which is a lot of money. Yeah. But um, I'm hopeful that it is the book on the Hawkesbury and then um, maybe in 10 years or so someone else will write a better one and, he, and good on them if they do it. But at the moment it would seem to be the book that covers yeah. most aspects of the Hawkesbury. Most definitely, it certainly does. Look, thank you very much for being on The Brecky Show today with Scott and I and um, we, we may catch up with you again if you come up to Sydney, all right? You've got to come on. I've, I've got to come up to Sydney. I want to go and visit my mum at Mount Karingai and good. mosey down to Bob and Head and mosey down to have have lunch at the fish and chip shop at Brow Waters and I've been go there. up to the St Albans. Yeah, go up to the St Albans pub again, which yes. I understand is underwater. Yes. Well, um, I tell you what, when you do that, bad. contact us. I shall. Yeah, that'd be great. Yes. It'd be yep. great to catch yeah. up. Thank you very yep. much for your time. That was wonderful. Okay, thank you very much. Okay, ta-da, Paul. Bye. The Pulse of the Hawkesbury. Pulse 89.9.